0: Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you do not own a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you. Feel free to use one of those, Mark chapter 2. If you do not own a Bible, know that we have some in the foyer on the table in the back. Feel free to grab one of those on your way out. Uh, We're in the process of journeying through the gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves stepping into a story that concerns Jesus' interaction with a guy named Levi. Before we jump into the story and read it together, let me ask you a question. How would you finish this sentence? The Son of Man came to what? The Son of Man came to dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that sentence? Well, I don't know what thoughts or ideas may pop up in your mind, but understand that as we read through the Gospels, that sentence is completed on three different occasions in the Gospels. On one occasion, it's found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man, of course, is a reference to Jesus, on why he came, and this is what he says. For even the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve... And to give his life as a ransom for many. But then we find that sentence completed again in Luke chapter 19 verse 10. Where we see that the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now both of those verses kind of speak to why Jesus entered the world. He came for a, for a purpose. He came to accomplish some type of mission. But then the third occurrence of that statement is found in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, and there we read that the Son of Man has come, and this is what it says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. So whereas the first two speak of why Jesus came, his mission, so to speak, that last Presence or completion of that sentence speaks to how Jesus came. How did Jesus go about his fulfilling his mission in the world? He came eating and drinking. And so we hold on to that as we step into this story in Mark chapter 2 because here we're going to find a story where the mission of Jesus and the method of Jesus converge. And when the mission of Jesus and the method of Jesus converge, you're going to find that it excites some but offends many. And as we read through this, when we begin to look at both the mission and the method of Jesus. We begin to discover that the gospel is far greater than we realize. The gospel is far more glorious than you and I give it credit to uh, on, on a, a regular basis. We don't think about the gravity and the glory of the gospel often enough. Do you understand that the gospel speaks to not only the fact Jesus wants to forgive sinners which he does. That was his mission. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to forgive sinners, as we talked about last week. But you know that there's more to the gospel. It, it gets, although that is fundamental, that is foundational, that is certainly not all that the gospel speaks to. For not only did Jesus come to forgive sinners like you and me, Jesus came to befriend sinners like you and me. He's come to sweep sweep us up into a friendship with himself, a relationship with him that is real, that is authentic, that is dynamic. Jesus has come not only to forgive sinners, which was his mission to die on the cross, but he came to befriend sinners, to bring us into relationship with himself. And you see this dynamic at work in Mark chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 13. This is what goes down. It says, he referring to Jesus Went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "Follow me." And he rose and followed him. So we're introduced to a guy named Levi. He's he's found in this moment sitting at a tax booth. This means his job was a tax collector. That Levi was a guy who made a prosperous living for himself, but understand for him, a Jewish man, to engage in that occupation, for that to be his profession, means he profited to, at the expense of his fellow Jews. For him to serve as a tax collector meant he was an employ- He was employed by the Roman government. The Roman government was occupying Jerusalem and Israel in this moment and during this time, and, and they would collect taxes, and sometimes they would employ Jewish people to do so. But if a Jewish person ever took up that job and stepped over and kind of started serving the Roman government in that way, in the common Jewish mind in the first century, they would think that this person has turned their back on Israel. That for Levi to accept the job as a tax collector meant that he literally rejected the kingdom of God. He was taking money from Israel and passing it on to the Romans. And many of the Jews were waiting for a Messiah to show up who would come in and kick out the Romans, a political militant Messiah who would come in and establish the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. And Matthew or Levi wasn't making it easy for that to happen. He was actually taking money from Israel and giving it to the Romans, utterly making him utterly despised by his own people. And so for him to take that job and to fatten his pockets in that way meant that he rejected the kingdom of God. He turned his back on the promises of God. He wasn't expecting the same thing all the other Jewish people were expecting in this moment. So he rejected the kingdom of God. He wasn't living for its arrival. He wasn't expecting the Messiah. He was siding with the enemies of the Jews. But understand also serving as a tax collector. It was a, it was a manipulative profession. It was a very self-serving profession. It was tied to a system that fostered exploitation. There was an arbitrary use of power that Levi and other tax collectors gladly uh, took advantage of. Because if people could, could not pay their taxes, the baseline taxes, then Matthew and other tax collectors would serve as loan sharks. And they would start collecting interest on various uh, people and they would collect far more than what was required, and then everything that was excess would just go into their own accounts. So there are some scholars who view tax collectors in the first century as being trained extortionists. They were kind of like a mob bosses of the first century, and as such, they carried a stigma in the first century Jewish world. They were viewed as betrayers of their own race. They were viewed as those who've rejected the kingdom of God and have embraced essentially the kingdom of self. They were living entirely for their own prosperity. A guy like Levi had made money his God, and he was, he was maximizing the potential of that profession. So a lot of Jewish people would think about Levi, and in their minds there was no one more lost than him. There was no one more unworthy of them. This is why when you read throughout the Gospels, Tax collectors and sinners are oftentimes paired together. This is why later on in the passage, you're gonna see tax collectors and sinners joined together by that conjunction because they were one and the same. To be a tax collector was to be a sinful person. So this was a type of guy nobody wanted to be friends with. This was a type of guy most Jewish people turned their backs on. But notice what Jesus does in this moment in verse 14. As he is passing by, it says he saw Levi. He looked in his direction. And I wonder, when was the last time a a person actually looked at Levi? When was the last time a Jewish rabbi looked at Levi? This wasn't the kind of guy you wanted to make eye contact with. So I would imagine most people who walked by his tax booth walked with their heads down and their eyes covered, not wanting to look at him because on one hand they were either intimidated by him because of his job and his role in the world But then on the other hand, many of whom were disgusted by him. So no one made it a habit to look at Levi and make eye contact with him, but yet that's precisely what Jesus does here. See, Jesus has a tendency to see sinners who are separated from his kingdom. He looks in the sinner's direction. He gazes upon them. He fixes his eyes towards them. and, And as he does so, he then summons sinners into his kingdom. So after he sees Levi sitting at the tax booth, this place of rebellion, this place that kind of metaphorically speaking reveals that he's rejected the kingdom of God and embraced the kingdom of self, Jesus sees him in that moment, and then he summons him. He says, follow me. And he issues to Levi the same invitation he issued to Peter, James, Andrew, and John earlier in Mark chapter 1. He locked eyes with him. He saw him, and he summoned him. Now, this is scandalous grace, right? This is the kind of grace that would cause many people to scratch their heads. This would bewilder everyone who witnessed Jesus calling out to this guy, Levi. But that's the kind of grace we're a part of in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a type of kingdom that once it breaks into the world, it starts turning the world on its head. It surprises people in the way that it advances, And so Jesus not only summons this sinner into his kingdom, saying, follow me. Understand that Levi would one day become, or he would become a pillar. He would become one of the 12 apostles. He actually would become a leader in the church. In fact, this guy would go on to write one of our four gospels. He would write the Gospel of Matthew. This is who he was before Jesus, a tax collector, a sinner. Yet Jesus saw him, Jesus summoned him, and Jesus put him into essentially a missional community with guys like Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the very types of guys that he likely exploited as a tax collector by overcharging them for their trade as fishermen. But yet this is the type of community, this counterintuitive community that Jesus is creating with his kingdom. And as you look through the story of Levi, understand that the kingdom of God isn't simply for the least of these. The kingdom of God is actually for the worst of these. We have a tendency to think that we, we love to champion how the kingdom of God is for the least of us. See, the kingdom of God is for the poor. The kingdom of God is for the, down, the downcast and the downtrodden. And absolutely it is, but it is not simply for the least of us. The kingdom of God is for the worst of us. The kingdom of God goes after those of us who feel like we're too far gone. We're about as far from the kingdom of God as possible, yet that's precisely who Jesus goes after in this moment. The kingdom of God is simply, isn't simply for the least of us. It is for the worst of us. And when, Jesus, when Levi hears the words of Jesus saying, follow me, we're told that he rose and followed him. He got up, and that's a powerful picture. Levi experiences a type of resurrection That word rose is the same type of word used to describe Jesus' resurrection from the grave at the end of Mark's gospel. The resurrection is taking place. Levi is stepping out of the tomb of his tax booth, and he's stepping into the kingdom. He's, metaphorically speaking, moving from death to life. He's experiencing what every disciple experiences with Jesus. Jesus is the kind of Savior who sees us sitting in our sin, He sees us when we've rejected the kingdom of God and have embraced the kingdom of self. He sees us when we turn our backs on the way God wants us to live and the way God says life should work and we begin doing things our own way. Jesus sees us in those moments. He sees us when we're using people rather than loving people. He sees us when we're exploiting others for our own benefit. He he sees that. But yet Jesus is the kind of savior who doesn't simply see us in that and then leave us be. Jesus is the type of savior who sees us sitting in our sin and summons us up and he raises the dead in us. He calls us out of our tombs and into the life of his kingdom. This is what's going down in Levi's life when he says, follow me. This is the mission of Jesus. Jesus. The mission of Jesus involves him seeking and saving sinners. But when you shift gears out of verse 14 and you step into verse 15, you'll notice the scene changes. We move from focusing on Levi at his tax booth and and suddenly we're brought around a table. And the scene shifts beginning at verse 15. This is what it says. And as he, referring to Levi... Reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining, and here's Jesus, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So we move from the tax booth to the table. Do you see the shift? We move from the place of sin to the place of grace, And suddenly we move from focusing on the mission of Jesus to the method of Jesus. Jesus not only came to forgive sinners, he came to befriend sinners. This is why you see Jesus oftentimes all throughout the gospel sitting at a table with others, sharing meals with people, attending parties thrown by others, In Luke's account, Luke chapter 6 of this very same story, Luke tells us that Levi threw a feast for Jesus, and he invited all of his friends in. He threw a party in that moment. There's a guy by the name of Tim Chester who wrote a fascinating book called um, A Meal with Jesus, and in it, he he just kind of looks at all the scenes, and there are a lot of scenes in which Jesus is found seated at a table sharing a meal or attending a party in the service of his kingdom. And this is what he says about the mission of Jesus. He says, Jesus' mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He says, he did evangelism and discipleship round a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. People get real excited about that last part, right? Right? This was Jesus' method. He was always found eating meals and attending parties, so much so that when the religious leaders observed Jesus doing this, they caused him to be well, they labeled him something other than he was. They called him a glutton and a drunkard because of the types of people he ran with, the types of people he shared a table with. Jesus was, guilt, was guilty by association, according to the religious leaders. They would call him a glutton and a drunkard because it happened so often. Jesus constantly sharing a meal with others. And we get a picture of how Jesus came not only to forgive sinners, but to befriend sinners. And if there's one thing I want us to grab hold of as a church, this is it. If there's one aspect of the method of Jesus that I want to mark the Hallows Church, it is this. I want us to see how Jesus befriended sinners by engaging in the ordinary activities of sharing a meal with people who weren't like him, who weren't uh, like the rest of his disciples. I want us to see the method of Jesus, and I want this to flow into our DNA as a church so that you and I begin to recognize how our tables, how the meals we share on a regular basis can become places of grace our tables can turn into places of grace where all are welcome, right? I mean, this is a diverse crew hanging with Jesus in this moment. This is all kinds of people who've come to Jesus. This, it isn't so much a bunch of religious people. It's a bunch of sinful people. It isn't so much a bunch of respectable people in the first century. It's a bunch of people who were viewed with stigmas. These were sinners and tax collectors reclining at table with Jesus, and Jesus welcomed them all. He welcomed them all. Tim Chester put it this way again in his book. He says, when Jesus eats with Levi, he says the message is clear. Jesus has come for losers, people in the margins, people who've made a mess of their lives, people who are ordinary. Jesus has come for you. The only people left out are those who think they don't need God, the self-righteous and the self-important. And sadly, that includes many people. You see, in this moment, sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus. They were feasting with Jesus while all the religious self-righteous people were standing at a distance judging everything that was going down. They were welcomed to the table, but their own self-righteousness prohibited them from engaging. It's not that Jesus said, okay, tax collectors, sinners, you come, and everybody else stay back. It's that they did not come because their cells were in the way. You see, what keeps people out of the kingdom of God isn't so much their sin, what keeps people out of the kingdom of God is their self-righteousness. That's what holds people back, it's not need. Your sin will never disqualify you from the kingdom of God, but your self-righteousness will. Your sin will not disqualify you, but your self-righteousness will. Jesus here seated at the table. The others could have come, but they chose not to. They were too full of themselves to come to the Messiah and to see salvation in Jesus. You see, the table should become our tables should become tables of grace where we welcome anyone and everyone to into relationship with us, into fellowship with us, and vice versa. It's a table of grace here, but you also I want us to see how our tables can can become places of community. Places where community is built. And I'm not talking about a a community where everybody looks the same and talks the same and acts the same. I'm talking about real community. I'm talking about the type of community where the only thing, the only common denominator that really counts is the fact that we all are friends with Jesus. It's not so much the color of our skin. It's not so much the size of our bank accounts. It's not so much this or that that brings us together. It's the fact that we're friends with Jesus and Jesus is the magnet that draws us together in community. He's the magnet in this moment. And Levi is a part of this. He's been summoned into this new, com- new, and it's a diverse community. It's a risky community. You understand that the tax collector is now seated across from fishermen, people that they likely took advantage of, people that they likely exploited. Now Jesus has brought them together. He's reconciled their relationship. He's overcome that in them so that they can be together. I pray for a community in the Hallows Church for, of people who, who share and who bank on and give our lives to the fact that the one thing that really matters, the only thing that matters in our community is our shared friendship in Jesus. And we can get through and over and around all the other things that might frustrate us about each other, all the other things that, may, that society says should put a wedge between our relationships, a wedge between our friendships, to see all of that melting in the gospel. And seeing our table becoming a place of community where our tables are diverse settings. But let me ask you, if that is something that we're gonna go for both in our missional communities, is that something we're gonna pray for in the life of the Hallows Church? how, How open are you to sharing life with people who aren't like you? How open are you really to sharing life with people who aren't like you? Those who might annoy you, those who might offend you, those who do not look like you, those who were raised perhaps in another part of the city, those who were raised in another part of the country, those who were raised in another part of the world, how open are you to sharing life with people who aren't like you? Or go one step further, how open are you to sharing life with people who are, a little, who are rough around the edges? Like, what are you going to do in that moment in your missional community when someone who's not yet a part of the kingdom, they come and they sit down at the table and y'all are eating a meal and then the conversation turns to things of grace and the gospel and, and this guy just belts out all the reasons why he hates Jesus and all the reasons why he hates the church and all the reasons why he doesn't like anything that we're living for. What do you do in that moment? How do you respond? Do you respond with grace? Do you stiff arm them? Or do you allow them to just scoot a little closer into the table thinking maybe one day he'll get it? And the more he's exposed to our community of grace, the more he's exposed to our community of love, the more that he's exposed to the message of the gospel, one day his heart may come around. What do you do 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 in that situation where the guy who's a little rougher around the edges steps into your missional community in the middle of the Bible said he's just dropping F-bombs left and right? And he doesn't even know anything different. He doesn't know that that might offend some other people in the room or that some people's consciences are easily pricked by that type of language. And he doesn't even realize, it. what do you do? Do you, do you rebuke him? Do you correct him? Do you judge him? Do you encourage him to stop talking? Or do you look at him through the eyes of grace? Do you recognize the value of community and multiple exposures and touches in community and to the, with the gospel for the sake of his own well-being? If we're gonna be a diverse community, if our tables are gonna become places of grace and community, it's gonna be kind of risky at times. But we embrace that because this was Jesus' method. But not only was it a place of grace and community, Our tables should become a place of mission. Places of mission where those who are in the kingdom and those who are not yet a part of the kingdom can come together and befriend one another, have casual conversations together, share in the most common and ordinary of human experiences, which is food, eating and drinking together, conversing about life together in that setting. Understand that Levi, I love what he does here. Levi begins connecting all the social dots in his life. I love the innocence of a new disciple who's not willing to try to micromanage his social circles. Well, I can't bring my tax collector friends together with my new friends who are following Jesus because they're former fishermen and my tax collector friends uh, might, might not like these guys and these guys might not like them, so I need to keep them apart. I need to micromanage their exposures to one another and just try to control the situation. I love the innocence of a new disciple who's just bringing it all in. He's not worrying about what could go wrong or what if somebody says something. He's not worrying about anything. He's just focused on Jesus. It's changing his life and all of his social ties are coming together. And you find his table becoming a place of mission where people who are following Jesus and people who are not yet following Jesus are stepping in and they're sharing this experience together. And you find that Incredible potential for the kingdom of God to appear on earth as it is in heaven. It's a wonderful moment. It's a wonderful dynamic in this moment. You see, our dining tables should be major intersections where all of our worlds converge. Our work friends, our play friends, our church friends, our non-church friends. The dining table is space where all of those circles can come together. I mean, you just think about it this way. Each and every one of you are going to eat at least 21 meals this week. You got 21 meals. How might you use a couple of those meals for the sake of mission? How might you use your table as an opportunity to show grace and to build community and to engage in mission? What if you started leveraging some of the meals you eat on a regular basis towards these purposes and opened up your table for these types of reasons. You see, I believe the kingdom of God appears on earth as it is in heaven through the simple method of turning our tables into places of grace, community, and mission. This is what I pray would become an ordinary reality in the life of our church. Because every time we do so, we're giving ourselves to seeing how the kingdom of God can show up here as it is in heaven, as grace, community, and mission is occurring. And do you realize that every time we do so, not only are we able to see the kingdom of God on earth now, we're able to project a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will one day be like. As we've said, each time we've looked at different miracles that Jesus performs in the gospel, we say that his miracles are little appetizers. They give people a little taste of what heaven's going to be like. And do you know that when our tables become a place of grace, community, and mission, that gives us an opportunity to show the world what heaven's going to be like? Levi the tax collector, otherwise known as Matthew, would write another gospel, and in that gospel, he would point out a very important detail for us. Matthew chapter 18, verse 11, he would say this, speaking of heaven, speaking of when all things are said and done and the kingdom of God is fully manifested in the world, this is what he says. He says, in that moment, people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. They are experiencing a taste of heaven in this moment. And Matthew remembers it. It clicks something within him so that when he's writing his gospel, he can't help but point out that dynamic. There's coming a day when we all recline at table with Jesus. So now when we open up our tables, places of grace, community, and mission, we're giving people a glimpse of where the world is heading. And a wide swath of men and women from every tribe, every nation, every tongue on earth will rally around that same table in fellowship and eternal friendship with Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 25 would describe it this way by saying, you and I are going to then in that moment, we're going to eat rich food and we're going to drink well-aged wine, to use Isaiah's words. It's going to be a good day. And we can give people glimpses of that now. But of course, when Jesus' mission and his method method converge in this moment, it doesn't excite everyone there. There are people who are offended by his mission, they are offended by his method, and they appear in verse 16 when it says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Now, now notice that, they These religious people, these self-righteous people, they see this going down. They don't go to Jesus and challenge him. They go to the disciples. They try to siphon them off to get them to think differently about Jesus, to get them to think uh, sourly about his mission and his method. So they go to the disciples and try to siphon them off, cause division in this moment. And they ask them, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And his response in verse 17 is perhaps one of the most offensive statements Jesus makes in the entire Gospels. It's the reason why some of you are still holding back from Jesus. It's an offensive statement. Do you understand? When Jesus says this, when he makes this clarification, he's reminding everyone who reads his words. That there's not a single person in the world who has a moral compass capable of leading them into the kingdom of God. Everyone's moral compass is broken. It points south when it should point north. So we cannot follow our own moral compasses in order to get into the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is saying I've not come for those who are righteous, I've come for those who are sick, I've come for sinners. And this is Jesus' way. He's always managing to offend the self-righteous. If there's anything you hear Jesus say in the Gospels, if there's anything about his mission or his method that offends you, with all due respect, I want you to know that your problem isn't with Jesus. Your problem is with yourself. It is your self-righteousness that is being offended. Jesus always manages to offend the self-righteous, those who do not think they need grace, those who do not think they need a savior. Jesus always manages to offend the self-righteous. There was a German philosopher in the 19th century by the name of Nietzsche. He, perhaps you've come across his readings in college, whatever the case may be, he hated Christianity uh, for some reasons, but one of the main reasons was he believed that Christianity was for the weak. He didn't like it because it was for the weak. Now Nietzsche said a lot of things. Some things he's getting into some, some, some grains of truth, but that's, there's probably nothing he said that's more true than that. Christianity is for the weak. And it's more serious than that. Christianity isn't simply for a person who needs a crutch in order to hobble their way into the kingdom of God, Christianity, the message of the gospel, if we're understanding it rightly, it says that we don't simply need a crutch, we need life support. We must be connected to Christ or we're dead. He is our life. He is all we have in in this life, in this world. He's all we have for entering into the kingdom of God. See, yes, Christianity is for the weak. Christianity isn't simply a crutch. Christianity is life support. The gospel is everything, and that is a message that will always offend the self-righteous. But here's the good news. Jesus always manages to offend the self-righteous, but realize that Jesus never hesitates to befriend the sinner. If you're willing to humble yourself and to express your need for salvation, Jesus will never hesitate to befriend you. He will bring you into the kingdom. That's Jesus' way. So when this story ends in verse 17, you're, you're getting both a word of hope and a word of warning. Jesus, and the only way that Jesus can do, he gives people a word of hope and a word of warning all at the same time. The word of hope is this. The kingdom of God opens wide its doors to sinners. If you feel like you are a sinner, I've got good news for you. The kingdom of God opens wide its door to you. What's going to hold you back isn't the fact that you're a sinner. What's going to hold you back is the other side. What's going to hold you back is although the kingdom of God opens wide its doors to sinners, it remains closed to the self-righteous. What's going to keep you out of the kingdom of God isn't your sin, it is your self-righteousness. This is Jesus' message in this moment. It's a word of hope, And it is a word of warning. For those of you who are aware of your need for salvation, your need of the Savior, let me encourage you. Jesus will not hesitate to befriend you. Just humble humble yourself enough to say, Jesus, I need you. And then trust that as you do so, Jesus is going to come. He's going to see you and he's going to summon you. He's going to bring you into the kingdom of God. But if you're in this room tonight and you don't, sense your need for salvation you don't sense your need for a savior just just be warned just be warned the only thing standing in your way of salvation is yourself check yourself and step into the kingdom of god through the salvation that jesus provides jesus has come to forgive sinners and he's come to befriend sinners And so tonight we're going to have an opportunity where we begin the process of practicing on a larger scale, but we want this practice to flow in the micro scales of our daily meals and our missional communities and all those types of things. We're going to to share a meal together downstairs and we're going to turn that table into a place of grace. We're going to turn that table into a place of community. And we're going to turn that table into a place of mission. We're going to engage in conversations with one another that are kingdom-oriented, that are encouraging, that are challenging, that are truthful and compassionate. That's where we're heading this evening. So let me pray for us, and then we will uh, do a couple more things before we transition. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the mission of your son Jesus. I thank you for the method of your son Jesus. I pray that you would give us grace as a church and as a community of faith to follow in his lead, Lord, that we would see ourselves as forgiven and that we would see ourselves as befriended by Jesus. And Lord, would that affect us so that we would go forth and befriend those who are not yet a part of the kingdom to love others, to fellowship with others, to extend grace to others, to establish community with others and to engage in mission together. Father, I ask and I pray that you would work all of this in us now in Jesus' name, amen.